Hi, friends. I was in Michigan last week visiting some uh, family and friends, and uh, so it is so good to be back with you all in Northern California. Uh, you know, most Michiganders don't even know the difference between Southern California and Northern California. <laughs> so good to be back in Northern California. Um, we're going to, so we did a series through 1 Samuel 1 through 15, and uh, we are going to today kick off a series uh, looking at 1 Samuel 16 and 17 for the next several weeks. So um, welcome to open your Bibles to 1 Samuel 16. As you're turning there, I want to share a little bit of backstory uh, where we've been leading up to this point in 1 Samuel 16. So 1 Samuel 16 is where we're introduced to a young lad named David who would become a great king of the nation of Israel. But leading up to this point, we have been exploring the story of Samuel. And Samuel became this great priest and prophet of God. He led the people through a time period in their lives where uh, a lot of Israel was just really disorganized and really unsure of their future, and God set this man Samuel as their leader to help guide them through this transition, through this time of turmoil. And uh, so the people, they love Samuel, and he's led them well, but uh, the problem is Samuel's getting old. And so they come to Samuel and they say this, you are old. And your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. Now here's the problem with this request. God has set Israel apart to be different than the other nations. He set them apart to look different than everyone else. He set them apart to be a light to the other nations, to reveal to them the beauty of what it means to follow their God, Yahweh. So they're to be a light and to look different. And God is to be their king. But they are afraid. They're afraid that when Samuel dies, they'll have no one to lead them. So they're asking Samuel to appoint a king over them. Samuel does not like this one bit. But God says to Samuel, it's not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. Let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. And so Samuel does let them know. He says, okay, you want a king? Here's what's going to happen. If you want a king, a king will rule over you, and he will take your sons. He will take your daughters. He will end up enslaving you. He will take your property. This is what will happen if you get a king. And so you would think that the people would be like, oh my goodness, that's what life would be when we get a king? Uh, we don't want a king. So they say this, we want a king. We want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. They're afraid of different nations around them, invading them and taking over their land. And they believe if we have a king who will lead us and will defend us, we'll be okay. And so God says, okay. So sometimes God gives us what we want, 
even when it's not God's best for us. And so God gives them a king, and their first king is a man named Saul. Uh, Saul was a complete disaster. Uh, He didn't listen to God. He didn't listen to Samuel. He went his own way. Long story short, God said, this isn't going to work out. Saul is not going to work out as king. And so, uh, if I can have the next slide. Until the day Samuel died, he did not go to see Saul again, though Samuel mourned for him, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. And so, as we jump into 1 Samuel 16, uh, this is where we find ourselves in the story. God regrets making Saul king, and Samuel is mourning the loss of Saul as king. You see, Samuel has poured his life into this young man. He has given himself to this young man. He has shown him how he can lead the people as king. And yet Saul has gone his own way and chosen to not follow the ways God has instructed him in. And so God regrets making Saul king, and Samuel is grieving And then in verse 1, the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. Now, as I was studying this past week and preparing for today, and I read uh, this verse, I was like, oh my goodness, this is an amazing description kind of of the difference between my wife Jenna and me. Uh, Jenna is one of the most resilient people I know, one of the most adaptable to change I know. For me, if like change happens sudden or if something really grievous or hard is happening, like I, I just kind of sit in that for a while. And it's not that Jenna doesn't grieve well, she just is a realist and says, okay, it happened, uh, let's move on. And I'm like, what? Ah, like, come on, let, just let me sit in this for a while. She, well, I, okay, I'm moving on, and I'll be there waiting for you when you get there. Uh, and, and this is the, the scene with God and Samuel. God, God grieves as well, and he regrets that he made Saul king. But he says, listen, there, there is a group of people that needs someone to lead them, Samuel. So let's get on the ball here. Let's move forward, and let's make this happen. Uh, There is someone that I have chosen who will be king. Now, we're not going to dig deeply into this today. We're going to do this another Sunday. But just kind of make a mental note, or if you're taking physical notes, make a physical note that uh, 1 Samuel 16, verse 1, when God says, I have chosen one of his sons to be king. The, the word there for chosen uh, is literally translated in the Hebrew as seen. I have seen a king. There's a vision that God has. There, there is something that God sees for Israel's future that Samuel does not see. And, and I take great comfort in this. Because the same is true for us. There, there is a vision God has for us. There is a vision God has for you. 
There is something God has seen in you and in your life that you don't see clearly, that I don't see clearly. And it's a vision of a good future. It's a vision of hope. Uh, There's something amazingly beautiful about what God is doing. Let's not be too quick to forget that God said he is to be their king, but they've rejected him as king, and the people want a human king. God is working in the midst of poor human decisions to try to help his people. And even in the midst of our brokenness, even in the midst of our poor decisions, God works within us to bring about a good future. And he invites us into this good future that he is writing for us. Verse 2, Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. Okay, so Samuel realizes Saul has not stepped down from being king. He hasn't resigned. He hasn't said, okay, I walked the opposite way of the way God called me to walk, and so I'm, I'm done. No, he, he is gripping on to his power. He is holding on to his kingship. And so for Samuel to go anoint another king is an act of treason. And Saul could kill him for it. And so Samuel says to God, listen, listen, I don't think this is going to work out. If I go and anoint another king, Saul could kill me. So, verse 3, or middle of verse 2, the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Anyone notice anything just a little unusual about this interchange between Samuel and God? Nothing? So, go ahead, Mary Beth, what? Okay, a real conversation. What, what is God telling Samuel to do here? Deceptive pretense. Yeah, yeah. It's like, whoa, 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 what? What did God just say? Slow down. Let's, let's look at that again. Uh, scholars for ages have debated over this passage. It is just like, what just happened? Samuel said, I'm scared for my life. If I go anoint another king, Saul could kill me. And God says, okay, well, here's an idea. Take a heifer with you and and say you're going to go offer sacrifice. And so some scholars say, no, 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 no. God's not telling Samuel to be deceptive here. Other scholars say, oh, yeah, God is telling Samuel to be deceptive here. Uh, Here's the issue. We, we wrestle with this in our minds because we were raised in this modern Greek education system that, that dichotomizes everything. Right, wrong, good, bad, up, down, in, out. There, there's no in-between for us so often. But in the Jewish consciousness, this just simply isn't the case. That They were given over 600 laws to follow, and they constantly were debating Which laws were weightier, is what they would say. Which laws are weightier than the other laws? So, for example, 
Jesus addresses this in his life. Uh, there was a law that said, if your, don- if your neighbor's donkey falls into the ditch, help the neighbor's donkey out of the ditch and take it back to your neighbor. But there was also this law called the Sabbath. And you weren't supposed to work on the Sabbath. So there was this raging debate. If my neighbor's donkey falls into the ditch on the Sabbath, do I help the donkey out or not? Because one way or another, I'm going to break a law. And so what do I do? And so when a teacher of the law comes to Jesus and says, Teacher, which of the laws is the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, The greatest commandment is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. And then he says, and the second is like it. Now, in the Jewish mindset in the first century, there was no debate over what the greatest law was. They all agreed it was love God. There was a debate over what the second greatest commandment was. Many Jews said the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. But some said, no, 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 no. The second greatest commandment is Sabbath. And so Jesus says the second greatest is love your neighbor as yourself. Love, Jesus says, is the weightiest of all the laws. So if you find yourself in a place that feels conflicted, choose the way of love. And so for the Jews, it wasn't an issue of right-wrong. It was an issue of what is the most loving way forward. Now, whatever's going on here with God and Samuel, what we can be certain of is that God loves Samuel and believes his life is worth saving. Now, the last thing I want you to get out of this teaching this morning is to walk out of the doors and say, uh, Matt said it's okay to lie. It seems there are circumstances in which we can find ourselves in ethical quandaries, but it's not very often. Uh, We hear stories of amazing people during World War II who hid Jews in their homes, and they would lie to the Nazis about it. Seems like the, the law of love trumped there. We don't find ourselves in these types of circumstances very often. Uh, When we are deceptive, it's usually rooted in a deep fear of what others will think of us. And and so we try to skirt around things or, or just slightly be deceptive so that people won't think something of us that we think they might think of us if we told the whole truth. Uh, I flew in late Friday night. I got home around 11. Uh, Jenna and I didn't go to sleep until around 1 after catching up for a while. And then I was woken up by one of my beautiful children in the morning who came to our bed and said, Daddy, someone brought a glass of water to my bed, and some of it spilled, and now it smells like pee. (laughs) Really? And I said, you know, 
accidents do happen. And if you wet the bed, it's okay. To which the child responded, okay, I wet the bed. Uh, this, this child was concerned that I'd be upset about the accident, which wasn't the case, and just simply needed to be reassured that that wasn't the case. But what a, what a imaginative thing to say, don't you think? <laughs> and, and I think we, we keep doing these things as we get older. We, we, our imaginations just go wild with the ways we can just kind of slightly, like it, it was water, not pee, but now it smells like pee. I, how that happened, I just don't know. Kind of like Jesus changing water to wine, I don't know. It just happened. <clears throat> Anyhow, verse 4. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? See, here's why the elders are trembling, why they're so afraid. Uh, they know that Samuel has walked away from Saul as king. And now, here is Samuel in Bethlehem. And if he's a refugee in Bethlehem, if he's trying to hide out in Bethlehem, they know their whole town is at risk. Because Saul, at this point, probably considers Samuel a traitor. So do you come in peace? What's going on here? What are you doing here? Like, you're an old dude. We know you didn't just walk to Bethlehem, all the way to Bethlehem, just to hang out. And Samuel says, well, kind of I did. Yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. I want to dig into this passage a lot more next week. Uh, but today, the way I want to look at this passage is to try to look at it through the lens of people reading it 500 years before the time of Jesus. Uh, the stories accumulated in First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings were uh, these stories were told as oral tradition and then written down and uh, finally completed. Uh, about 500 years before the time of Jesus. Anyone know a significant event that happened in the life of Israel around 500 years before the time of Jesus? It's this little thing called exile. Uh, the people have been exiled to Babylon. Babylon invaded and dispersed the people, the Jewish people. And they're in exile. Uh, they are in grief, they are in mourning, they are dispossessed, they are displaced. And one of the things the Jewish people are trying to do while they're in exile is they're thinking through, how did this happen? How did it come to this? 
And so as they read through these stories, 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, they see the story of what led to exile. That they asked for a king when God was their king. And that even though there are a few bright spots like David, even though David was a very, very broken man as well, and some light spots like Josiah and Hezekiah, uh, mostly the history of the Israelite kings are king after king after king who, what the text said, says, did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They rejected the way of God over and over and over again. And they brought about their own demise and ended up in exile. Uh, Mainly the leadership of Israel brought about the demise of Israel. And it was the common folk who were left bearing the brunt of these decisions. So so often, it, it is the decisions we make or decisions people around us make that leave us in places of exile. Um, as I was in Michigan this past week, uh, I, I'm from West Michigan, um, and so Grand Rapids, Michigan, and uh, 2008, when the recession hit, when the nation was facing this uh, major uh, housing market crash, and financial crash, uh, Michigan especially was also facing uh, the crash of the auto industry. And so Michigan was hit especially hard. Uh, Where I'm from on the west side of the state was hit hard because there's a lot of industry that does parts for Detroit on the east side, but we were not hit nearly as hard as the east side. In Detroit. Uh, And so uh, Detroit, one out of every three houses had one of these signs. Next slide. 36% of all Detroit properties went through foreclosure from 05 to 14. 139,699 total homes foreclosed. Next slide. 56% of all mortgage foreclosures are blighted, need to be demolished, or have been foreclosed again for non-payment of taxes. 76% of the 84,000 properties on the city's blight list are foreclosures. Entire neighborhoods, entire neighborhoods, just abandoned, boarded up, and the people left. I remember seeing on Craigslist that a house was for sale for trade for an iPhone. Uh, People were offering their houses for a couple thousand dollars. No one would buy them because no insurance company would insure them because the entire neighborhood was abandoned. People came in, ripped out all the copper piping, ripped out everything of any value, gone. Detroit went through uh, a severe exile, uh, deep, deep hardship. 
one out of every three people lost their house to foreclosure. That doesn't even count the houses that went in short sales. Just foreclosure alone. Um, I bring this up because I, I think it can kind of help us understand a little bit about uh, the place from which people were reading this story. And when they read that God is still with his people, that there is yet hope, that God looks on the heart, uh, this is a story for them of hope. That, oh, God has not abandoned us. In Isaiah 61, it says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. God is always providing a word of hope in the midst of exile. Whatever exile you may be experiencing this morning, God has a word of hope for you. Whatever thing is going through your heart, through your mind of how did we get here? How did I end up here? Whether it's relational exile, vocational exile, financial exile, emotional exile. God is a God who rebuilds and restores and renews hope in the brokenhearted and the downcast. And for you this morning, if, if you don't feel at all like you're in a place of exile, you know someone who does or is feeling that. Just like this text says, God too has anointed you with the Spirit to speak a word of hope and healing and renewal. Because God sees in ways we don't see. God sees something in us and in our future that we can't clearly see. And it's good and it's beautiful and it's hopeful. There were uh, numbers of people in Detroit who said, we're not leaving. This is home. This is our place. This is our city. We're not leaving. 
what should we do with these blighted neighborhoods? What should we do? And so numerous groups of people decided, this is what we're going to do. In the midst of abandoned buildings and in the midst of abandoned houses, uh, we're going to plant gardens. And so they, they started farming the land, ur urban farming, in the midst of urban light. And they started a renewal process, growing joy. They said, it looks bad. It is bad. It's exile. It's horrible. We're not leaving. We're going to make a new start. And this is the invitation we all have in the midst of exile. What does it look like to be the presence of Jesus in the midst of exile? Uh, what does it look like when God says, uh, people look at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart? What does it look like to look into your own heart and find the very presence of Christ right there, giving you hope for a new future. In the midst of the exile of those you know and those you don't know, what does it look like to be the presence of Christ to them in their exile? The cross was the exile of Jesus. It was the place where he took on all the pain, all the heartache, all the brokenness, all the sin of the world. All the exile of the world on himself. And this symbol of death, this symbol uh, of heartache, has also become a symbol of hope. Because the cross doesn't have the last word. Resurrection does. And we have hope in the cross because Jesus showed us how to die. Jesus showed us how to suffer. And he took it all on himself on the cross. And three days later, conquered death by the power of the Spirit and rose again. The way of Jesus is the way of hardship, is the way of the cross, is the way of suffering. It is also the way of resurrection. It is also the way of life. It is also the way of hope. We die daily. We rise daily. This is the invitation Jesus gives us to walk as he walked, dying to self, rising in new life by the power of the risen Christ to bring hope and healing to a broken, hurting, and exiled world. So this morning when we come and partake of the bread and the cup, when you take this piece of bread, a beautiful picture of the body of Christ, when you dip it in this cup, a beautiful picture of Christ's blood shed for us. I want to invite you to reflect on Christ's death 
and his resurrection. And I want to invite you to ask the question, where, where in your life right now do you feel exiled? And entrust that exile to the crucified and risen Christ. And secondly, I want to invite you to ask yourself, who in my life is in exile? And Jesus, how are you inviting me to be your presence to that person? What does that look like? Where are you in exile, and who do you know who is in exile, who could use an encouraging note, an email, a phone call, uh, a coffee, your presence in their life? Let's pray together. God, we are so deeply grateful that you are present to us in the land of exile, that you, God, are faithful when we are not. You bring hope in the midst of despair. You bring peace in the midst of strife. You bring joy in the midst of heartache. God, open our eyes to see as you see. God, we give our exiles to you, asking you to meet us in those places of despair and make us more and more a people of hope. And God, more than ever, make us a voice and a presence of your hope and healing in the world. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So as you go today, may you know the beautiful presence of the risen Christ within your own heart. May you have the hope and healing that the risen Christ brings. May your despair turn to joy. May you be filled to overflowing with the goodness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And may his grace and peace go with you. Amen.